0: And I want to start by just throwing this idea out here. I wonder if you've thought about this before, that every individual, every single corporation, really even every single product is known for something. If you think about it, all these things, all these people, these companies, they're known for something. Everybody and everything has a reputation, whether we like it or not. I mean, think about it. I'll give you some examples here this morning. When I say Steve Jobs, okay, here's a picture of, uh, he's uh, one of my heroes. When you think of Steve Jobs, uh, straight away, some thoughts start to pop into your mind. You think of the company Apple, of which he was the CEO. You think of the iPhone that came out when he was in charge of Apple. I don't know about you, but when I think of Steve Jobs, I think of a, a genius, an innovator, somebody who was incredibly creative. That's kind of what I think of, that he was known for. Or how about this guy, Elvis Presley? Maybe some of you, when you think of Elvis Presley, you think, okay, he was known as the king. He was known for rock and roll, a pioneer, innovative in music, you know, changed the way music went. Things, too, can be known for something. When I think of something like a Mercedes, okay, when I think of the Mercedes vehicle, I think that's known for being a luxury car. A fast car, an expensive car, a car that many of us will never, ever drive. But that's what I think of when I think of the Mercedes automobile. And when I was thinking about this week, I was thinking, what's crazy is in some areas, you can have one particular area and two things in the same area be known completely differently for something. I think about it. For example, fast food. Okay, in the area of fast food, you think it would all be the same? And yet you can have a restaurant like Chick-fil-A and a restaurant like McDonald's. Both fast food restaurants, both known for very different things. Chick-fil-A, the greatest chicken sandwich you can eat my pleasure. Uh, Chick-fil-A is just great service, great experience. McDonald's, on the other hand, a little bit different. Known more for convenience. You're in a hurry. You've got to get the kids to sports practice. They didn't have time to do dinner. We're just going to go through the McDonald's drive through because it's quick and it's easy and it's cheap. And I'm convinced that every minivan in America, somewhere there's a McDonald's French fry in that minivan. Every single, it's in a cup holder, it's under a seat. And the great thing is it looks exactly the same as the day you bought it. McDonald's is known for something. Think about hotels. I can think of two hotels, the Ritz-Carlton, Motel 6. Both hotels, both will give you a room for the night, but both known for something a little bit different. The donuts served at each hotel in the morning taste a little bit different at the Ritz-Carlton than they do at Motel 6. My last example, these two guys here, both guys from Britain, Okay, but both of these gentlemen behind me are from Great Britain. One of them is famous. He's known for his strength, his chiseled abs, his good looks, and his charm. And the other is Jason Statham, the actor. He's known for movies like The Expendables, things like that, so. Crazy that things and people can be known for different things. Now, the reason we're starting out 2024 thinking about this idea is that as many of you have already figured out, followers of Jesus, we can be known for certain things. We are known for certain things. We have a reputation. The church has a reputation. And over the next few weeks as we launch into 2024, I think it's going to be great for us as a church to to remind ourselves, what do we want to be known for? What do we want to be known for in this community in which God has placed us as a church? What do we want people outside of the church to think of when they think of Connect Church? When they think of Jesus and they know that we're members of Connect Church, what do we want them to think? What do we want them to know that we are known for? So we're going to look at a few different ideas over the next few weeks. And I'm hoping this will challenge us personally. Because the reality is, I think Scripture teaches that when we talk about the church, in our heads we kind of think of this building that we're all sat in this morning. We think of buildings around our community, some of them with steeples and the bricks and mortar. When we think of churches, that's what we think of. But the reality is, Scripture teaches us that we are the church. That you and I, as followers of Jesus, we are the church of Jesus Christ. So it's one thing to say, well, what do we want the church to be known for What do we want the reputation of the church to be? And think about that building. But the reality is we are the church. So there will be some self-examination that will go over the next couple of weeks. There's a man by the name of Jeff Henderson. He worked at Chick-fil-A for many years. He was a high-up executive at Chick-fil-A. He then went on to be a pastor at a church in Atlanta. And then after that, he left to become kind of a business leader and a coach. And uh, one of the first things he did was he wrote a book. And this book was based on some of his experience in Chick-fil-A and as being a pastor. And this business book that he wrote, it was called FOR, F-O-R, FOR, it's a great book. We actually read it as a staff a couple of years ago when it came out. And uh, the, the book's wonderful, the whole book, but there's a, a, kind of in the introduction, there's a premise it sets. And he asks two questions in this book. He asks the reader two questions to examine themselves and, and see what the answer is to these two questions. The first question he asks is, what do you want to be known for? What do you want to be known for? If if you're a business leader reading this book, Mr. Henderson would say, what do you want your business to be known for? What's the dent you want to make in this universe? What's the reputation that you want to attain? What is the mark that you personally want to leave? It's a great question. I think many of us could probably think right now, well, I know what I want to be known for. And we could come up with some ideas, some some character traits, some some personality as a parent, as a spouse, as an employee. I, I know what I want to be known for, but here's the second question What are you known for? What are you known for? And that's the challenging question. And unfortunately, we don't get to answer the second question. Our spouse gets to answer that question, our kids get to answer that question the people we work with our neighbors and our friends they're the ones that get to answer the second question and when the answers to these two questions match up that's when we know we're living life to the fullest we are living life on purpose and there's so much fulfillment in knowing what we want to be known for and that that is what people think of when they think of us but for some of us the answer to what do you want to be known for and what are you known for, it may not be the same. There may be a gap there. For some, it might be a small gap. For some, it might be a large gap. In the book, Henderson writes, it's, it's kind of to businesses, and there's a lot of business you know, advice and, and counsel in the book as a whole. But he's aware of the fact that, that church leaders will be reading this book as well. That followers of Jesus also will be reading this book. And from his own experience as a pastor, he brings illustrations in of, of being in the church. So he speaks to church leaders as well. And he says in this book, you know, tackling this idea of what do you want to be known for and what are you known for? He says the challenge is that um, from his experience as a pastor... He says that he often finds that churches tend to be known more for what they're against than what they're for. He said, my experience, sadly, is that, um, that churches can sometimes be known more for what they're against than what they're for. So what do you want to be known for? He suggests that when he looks at the life and teachings of Jesus, he sees something different. Jesus himself explains his mission and his purpose one day. It's a wonderful couple of verses, but listen to what he says in John 10, verses nine through 10. He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Jesus' description here of himself is that he is for mankind. Justin led us in that last song with that wonderful blessing that God would speak over us this morning, that God is for you this morning. He loves you so much. Even when you and I can come up with a list of reasons why he shouldn't, a list of things in our life that we know could be a barrier between us and God. But God is for you this morning. Jesus' description is that he is for you. He is here to save you, to give you not just life, but life to the full. He even goes on to say, it's the thief. The thief is his desire to, to steal and kill and destroy your life. God is for you this morning. So in 2013, when Casey and I were dreaming of planting this brand new church here in Washington the town that she was born and grew up in, the town that we were married in, we've lived in, our kids go to school in. If we're gonna start a church in this community to reach our friends and neighbors who don't yet know Jesus, what do we want that church to look like? And and we we talked about this a lot, Case and I, and we thought about this, and when it comes to our community, the town of Washington, we we came up with this thought that as a church, we can either be known um, uh, as a church that's in our community, A church that's against our community, a church that's of our community, or a church that's for our community? Do we want to be in, against, of, or for? Let me explain what I mean by those four small word definitions. What is a church that's in the community? In my opinion, these are the churches that, that simply exist. They have an address and a phone number, they have a facility, they hold weekly services, but they're not really making a huge impact outside of their own four walls. They are simply in the community. Now, that can be great for the people in that church, but the sad fact is that we know that every year in America, somewhere between six and 10,000 churches close their doors Churches get smaller, they get um, less people attending, and and sadly, a large number of churches every year close their doors. Now, we are a church plant. We help support church plants, so we are working very hard to make sure that for every church that closes, we are helping to start new churches around the country. But I wonder of all those churches that, that closed their doors in 2023, if there were some that the community didn't even notice. The community didn't even notice. They were in the community. But the community didn't notice when they were no longer in the community. Now, I don't know a single church that starts out wanting to just hold services and be a gathering for religious people. I think every church at its beginning wants to impact the community in which they find themselves. But over time, it can be very easy to kind of drift and become more inward focused. So so we as a leadership here at Connect, we fight against that. We constantly wanna be aware of the community that God's placed us in and the impact that we can have in this community. We never wanna be a church that's simply in the community. Now, you can have churches that are against the community. Thankfully, I don't know of really uh, any churches here in this area, but, but some of you may have um, come across these churches over time or, or seen these churches that actually position themselves against the community. They have this kind of us versus them mentality. They're always at war against something. There's a lot of animosity. The people inside the church are always right. The people outside the church are always wrong. And this kind of thinking can cause churches to completely isolate themselves from from culture and the people in their community. It's almost like they wanna create this bubble you know, where where we're safe inside and we're away from all those people outside because we've positioned ourselves against that community. When you do that, you lose influence in that community. The third one is a church of the community. A church of the community. Now again, these are my definitions, my thoughts here. These are my ideas. And and when I think of a church of the community, these are great churches, but I think they have an identity crisis. They want to be everything to everybody. They are so. Um, their desire is to be so much part of the community that they kind of change depending on what the community is going through and what's going on in the country at large and, and their values change and their, their direction changes because they want to continually be of the community. It would be so easy to start with the voice of what's being said in the community and then find ways to line up the teaching of Jesus with that. But the reality is when you start with the teachings of Jesus then oftentimes you end up swimming upstream. You end up going against what the community or the country at large believes in. And that can be a challenge. It can be a challenge to, to speak the words of Jesus when it goes against what the community is buying into and believing. But again, as that verse showed earlier, we don't, we don't share these in a, um, a cruel way. We share these to say, no, Jesus is for you. A life lived following Jesus is not just life, it's life to the full. And it may look different than the life you currently live, but I can tell you, following Jesus, it will transform and change your life forever. So instead of being in, against, of, we as a church, we decided we wanna be a church that's for the community. And I think if you've been attending Connect for any length of a time, you're sitting here this morning going, Dave, tell me something I don't know. (laughs) That's one of the reasons we enjoy coming to Connect, because we believe that you are a church that's for the community. But again, it's great to keep remembering this, reminding ourselves of this, because it can be tempting to drift away from that. In my 30 years here in the United States, I've never seen a better opportunity for the church to step up and be a church for the community. A church that's, that's here, and, and, and I, I use this illustration a lot here at Connect. It's like we're a group of people stood in a circle holding hands. I want that kind of connection. If you're a part of Connect, I want you to feel like you belong. But we're stood in a circle holding hands facing outwards, not facing inwards, because God has called us to, to look out and say, we are here for you. This is this amazing story that happened in the history of Israel. This is 2,500 years ago, 500 years before the birth of Jesus. The Jewish people find themselves at one of the lowest points in their history. The city of Jerusalem's just been destroyed. The temple where they all came to worship has been torn to pieces. People were killed, homes were burned to the ground, and many of the youngest and most promising and bright young Israelites have been captured and taken miles away to a place called Babylon, more than 500 miles away from Jerusalem. They're now living in Babylon in exile, taken from the lands that was their home. They lived there for several decades. And it was during this season that a Jewish prophet by the name of Jeremiah, and you can read his writings in the Old Testament, he sat down to reflect on all that was taking place. He's in agony. He's mourning where their nation is at. And God speaks to him. And God gives him this message to share with the people of Israel. Listen to what he says, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, to the people of Israel who are living in exile in Babylon. Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the foods they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Pray for the city that is currently keeping you imprisoned. Pray for the place that you are currently in exile. Pray that it prospers, because if it prospers, you prosper. This is a group of people who are used to living in safety and a land full of people who looked just like them and thought just like them and believed in the same God as them who now find themselves in a godless nation with people who think far differently than they do, with different values and standards. And the people of Israel were cowering and they were miserable and they were wishing that it could be the way it used to be. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, speaks to them. And said, here, don't be afraid of this foreign land and people. Live your lives, build your families, multiply. Show the people of Babylon who we are. And rather than show animosity to this place you're currently in, pray for the city. Pray that it experiences peace and prosperity. Because when our cities and communities prosper, we prosper. When our communities move ahead, we move ahead We can show the people of Babylon, the prophet is saying, we can show the people of Babylon who God is and the difference he makes in our lives. That's why we are for our communities because God is for us and the best way for people in our communities to see that God is for them is when we are for them. 500 years later, 500 years after this period in Israel's history, Jesus is born. We just celebrated this a couple of weeks ago here on this very stage, the birth of Jesus. As you all know, he grew, he became a man, he died, he rose again. And the church that we are a part of today started and grew and grew and grew across the world and grew across time to where we find ourselves today. So how is it? that the church grew so rapidly how is it that a group of people who lived so counterculturally in the world of that day could make such a significant difference i think really there's only one answer to that question it's because they realize that the hope can be found in the resurrection of jesus that the resurrection of Jesus, that the story that people were telling of this man, Jesus, who they'd heard of, who died and risen again. Eyewitness testimonies, that we've seen him. We were in a room praying and he showed up. I was walking along a road and he came and he walked alongside of me. There was a crowd of us one day and he came and he spoke with us and he ate with us. And he's changed my life. This is the center of the gospel message of all of Christianity, that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus, his only son, to die in our place so that our relationship with God that was broken by sin can be restored. But God's plan to restore that relationship, as we know, came at a very high price. Just a few minutes ago, we ate bread together, we drank from the cup together to remember the great price that God paid when he sent Jesus to die in our place. But that was it. He sent him to die in our place so that we can now have a relationship with God. Death no longer is an obstacle because Jesus overcame death. That is what grew so quickly. That is the message that caused the church to grow so rapidly. That is why 2,000 years later, the church of Jesus Christ is still growing. There may be churches closing, but there are hundreds, thousands of churches beginning all around the world as the gospel message continues to spread around the world. And many of us are here this morning because we heard that message and it changed our lives. It's transformed the way we live our lives. So, the answer to the question, how is it that the church grew so quickly, is simply because the message was so real. But I want to look at just one thing here this morning because the disciples, Jesus himself, and then the disciples, and then a man by the name of Paul, who was one of the very first converts to Christianity, his, his life did a complete 180. He was anti-Christian, and Jesus appeared to him, transformed his life, and he went to being like one of the loudest, biggest advocates for Jesus. He helped plant many of the churches that kind of sprung boards the, the growth of Christianity in the world at the time. What is it about the way Jesus lived his life, the way the disciples lived their lives following that, the way Paul lived his life and and planted and built these churches? What did they do that made such a great difference? I think there were three choices I'm gonna look at here real quick this morning. Three choices that signify the for culture that they had instead of the against culture. That we as Jesus followers this morning can say, hey, we wanna be a part of a church that has that same kind of culture in the community in which we find ourselves. The first is that they chose to go instead of stay. They chose to go instead of stay. It would have been so easy for some of those new believers to just gather together and and hunker down and, and meet together. But Jesus has said, no, you're to go into all the world and spread this message. To go everywhere, go to all people. Go to people who don't look like you, who don't think like you and tell them about me. And maybe they thought, but Jesus, we don't want to go to them. We don't like them. They're kind of (laughs) weird. They think strange things. We'd rather just stay here together. We don't know what people will think about us if we go to those people. But Jesus set a great example. Jesus wasn't afraid of spending time in the homes of tax collectors and sinners. Rather than wait for them to come to him, he went to them. But it came at a cost. We can read about that in Matthew's account of Jesus' life, Matthew 9, verse 10. Later, Matthew, who was a tax collector, invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many other tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Why would Jesus hang out with those people? Because Jesus decided to go instead of stay. And Jesus wasn't swayed by what people thought of him. It can be so easy, kind of, to bow to the opinion of others, to be afraid of what people might think. Even Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, fell victim to this. Paul, who came after Peter, he knew Peter, but he, um, he wasn't a disciple like Peter was. Even Paul had to call out Peter for being too afraid of what people might think. Listen to this, he writes in the letter to the church in Galatia, Galatians 2, 11 through 13. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. This is Paul speaking. For what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians. These were new Christians that weren't Jews, but they were not circumcised. Afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul had to say, Peter, you're so worried about what people think about you that you've actually changed what you believe to be the right thing. Jesus wasn't swayed when he sat in the homes of disreputable sinners because he'd made the choice to go instead of stay. And I want to be a church that's never afraid to say, no, we're going to go. We're going to reach people. We don't want to stay and wait for them to come to us. We're going to go to them because we want them to know that God is for them. Here's another one that's a challenge, I think, to all of us as we look to Jesus as our example, that we are to listen instead of argue. Too often today, as followers of Jesus, I think we find ourselves getting caught in in hot debates with people who think differently than we do. Sadly, this can often end up taking place on the public stage of social media. And in an effort to win a battle with somebody over, over, over maybe a small thing that we believe, we lose a war of influence over the larger thing that we believe. And that is that God loves us, that God wants a relationship with us but we build fences between us and others because of the arguments we find ourselves getting into. Listen, Jesus was constantly being drawn into arguments. And yet he was the master of not getting caught up in divisive debates. People wanted to nail Jesus down. They wanted to to trap him in his own words. One time, a group of religious leaders, they cornered in the temple. And listen to what happens. Matthew 21, 23 to 27. The leading priests and elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? We want an answer to that question. And instead of answering that question, Jesus says, I'll tell you what, by what authority I do these things. If you answer one question, Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? They talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask us why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, we'll be mobbed because the people believe John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. I'm not gonna give you the answer that you're looking for because you won't answer my question. He didn't get caught up in these debates, these arguments. He saw them for what they were. Finally, as well as making that decision, this early church to go instead of stay, to to listen instead of argue, they chose Jesus, Paul, the early disciples, the first Christians, they chose to love instead of judge. And sadly, I think the church today has become notorious for not doing a great job at this. It's why we tend to have an against reputation sometimes instead of a for reputation. We lose our influence in culture because we try to police the behavior of people outside the church. I think the church has its greatest influence when we police our own behavior, not others. Paul was writing to the brand new church in Corinth. New followers of Jesus. He said in 1 Corinthians 5.12, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. The apostle Paul made a decision. He wasn't gonna walk around the city of Athens saying, shame on you. I can't believe you're worshiping idols. The goal of the gospel is not to get non-believers to behave like believers. The truth is most believers have a hard time behaving like believers. The goal is to introduce people to a God who loves them so much And then watch as he starts to transform their lives from the inside out. I wanna close with this story. I was thinking about this as I was writing this message just this last week. And I think I've shared this story with some of you, my own personal journey in coming to find Jesus. So I grew up in a family that weren't churchgoers. When I was in my middle school years, um, actually younger than that, when I was a kid, my parents used to send me to this Christian club, and I heard all about Jesus, that he loved me. And I can remember being at a a Christian camp, and on the Friday night, the speaker said, how many of you want uh, to follow Jesus? And I remember putting up my hand. I didn't want to go to hell. I was to be a (laughs) a Christian, so I put up my hand. I don't know if I fully understood it, but I remember saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. My parents became followers of Jesus in my middle school years. And around about that time, I started to get in with some friends at school that really were not following Jesus at all. And I was drawn into, uh, through their friendship, a lot of things that kind of pulled me way away from the church, away from Jesus. Most of, well, all of my teenage years were spent very far from God, getting into all sorts of things. And I was thinking about that this week. I remember uh, my mom and my dad, they would pray for me. They would they would encourage me, they wouldn't encourage me, they would make me go to church, (laughs) kicking and screaming, I went. Sometimes if I wanted to go to the cinema on a Sunday night, I had to go to church. On a Sunday morning, it was like a, a bartering system, you know, on entertainment, being out with my friends. So never enjoyed it. I remember her, I remember being made to go to this, um, this outreach that they were doing for uh, teenagers. And I sat there and this preacher was preaching, you know, all about uh, the terrible things we were doing and how bad our lifestyles were and we need to become Christians. And I remember getting into a conversation at the end. I remember him telling me, all the stuff you're doing right now, it's not fun. You need to be a Christian. That's where real joy is. I remember thinking, dude, it's fun. <laughs> I'm loving it. <laughs> And it didn't make sense because he kept telling me all the things I was doing, how wrong they were. And, but I was like, I kind of like... But here's what I know, because I experienced this. As fun as those things were, when I got home at night, I can remember going to bed and still feeling this emptiness inside. I felt like I was pursuing all of these things that brought temporary satisfaction, temporary pleasure. In the moment, they were fun. But when the music died down, when it was just me alone in my bed, there was still this emptiness. And then a friend of mine who had also lived very far from Jesus, I met him at a family Christmas gathering and we went outside to chat and he started telling me about how he discovered Jesus. I actually remember at the time thinking, oh, Simon, what a waste, we've lost you. <laughs> you had so much going for you. you were, in my eyes, you were doing everything that I wanna do and now you've given it up for Jesus. But I could see something in his eyes. He kept talking about this amazing sense of peace and this amazing sense of just this presence of Jesus in his life, this transformative thing that had happened in his life. And I couldn't deny that there was a change in him. And God, through the Holy Spirit, he just kept on working in my heart over the next few weeks and months to the time where I just, one day I remember driving home from his house and I pulled over my car and just there, I said, God, I know you're real. I've been trying to run. I've been trying to do all this stuff, but I know you are real. Come into my life, I wanna follow you. And I would love to tell you that from that day on, everything changed. It was a gradual process. But I'll tell you what, I remember very early on after praying that prayer, just going to bed feeling like there is completion. I feel whole. I feel like what was missing is now there. And here's what's amazing. Everything that guy kept telling me I was doing was wrong. God started to change in me from the inside out. I was never gonna be able to change that behavior without Jesus at work in my life. But it took God through Simon telling me this, how much God loved me, how he was for me, how he had a plan for my life. And me finally saying, God, I need you in my life. I hope you've arrived at that place in your life where you've discovered Jesus. Maybe he's a part of your life, but like I said in communion this morning, you know, man, I need him to be more of my life. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're still like I was before my conversation with Simon. I pulled up my car on the side of the road and I said, Jesus, I need you in my life. Because I believe God, even in my mess of a life, you are for me. You love me. And there's still things in my life that he's working on. There's still things that he's changing to this day years later but it continues to happen out of this this love he has for me and this love that he wants to to see me change from the inside out. God is for us this morning. He's for our community. I want to be a church in this community that, that proclaims that message loud to everyone. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for everyone here this morning that they would know without any shadow of a doubt that it is the enemy who comes to steal, kill and destroy. If there is any sense of guilt or shame this morning of I'm not good enough for God to love me or I've done too many things wrong or if you knew what I'd done, God wouldn't want me. That is the enemy, the thief, who wants to just lie, kill and destroy. Lord, I pray everyone this morning would know that God, you are for us. You love us so much. You gave your life for us. You want to give us not just life, but life to the full. I pray everyone here would experience that this morning. And I pray that as we continue on into 2024, that in this community, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some other areas of our church life. But Lord, I pray that we would become known as a group of people who are for this community because God is for this community. And we want to make a difference in the world in which we find ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.